I don't know how many of you uh, know me. I know, know a lot of, I see a lot of new faces and things. So, I, um, but I was, I was born in San Antonio and ended up going to college here in the Midwest and, and trying to uh, figure out that, that decision of where to go to school was, was really hard. And then um, I basically got to the point where I was like, okay, God, just wherever I get the most scholarship money, I'll just, that, that's what I wanted, you know. I played volleyball, and there wasn't a whole lot of schools that had guys volleyball, so my options were a little bit narrowed. So that, God led me to Lindenwood University in, in St. Charles, Missouri, which I'm very thankful for, because that's how, how I met my wife and got here, and I, all the rest of my life has been kind of uh, affected greatly by that. Um, but when I got there, I, I didn't really know, I, I kind of came with the plan to play sports in college, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. Didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, looking back, I, I think I did kind of know what I wanted to do or know what God wanted me to do, but I wasn't sure I wanted to do it yet. So I, I, I knew I was kind of good at math, so I was like, okay, I'm going to just, they have a computer science degree, and I'm hearing lots of good things about computers. Like this was like before Facebook and stuff. I'm like, I'm like that old. I mean, so there were computers, but so there were computer, a lot of computer jobs, just like there are today, you know. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'll try, try my hand at computer science. The school had a computer science degree. So about a year or two into that, I really began to, to know like, okay, this is, this is kind of complicated. I think that I'm getting in a little bit over my head. Uh, and, and somehow I was able to, to manage my way through the degree. So I got my degree in computer science. Don't really remember much from that because it was all in like computer programming languages and none of my jobs since then have been computer programming and some of them have been like IT help desk stuff. But, uh, and I guess on paper, I, I look smart if I have a computer science degree, but I c- couldn't really program computers if you asked me to. But I do remember one thing. I do remember one thing from my programming classes and that is, is something called an if-then statement. An if-then statement, um, and, and you, you can probably tell what it is already, but uh, in, in computer programming language, you, you have all this code, and, and then some of the kind of key components would, would be built on these conditional statements. If a certain condition was true, then all of the different things in the parentheses following would happen. So if something was true, then something else would happen, and they could get really complicated with else if statements and else statements or and and that's you know part of the reason I just decided to not not go that direction and get a job in that field or anything because it was just it was too hard plus God leading me in other directions but um, you know that those if then statements I, I remember those and 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 when I was studying today's passage it kind of that reminded me because we're going to deal with an if then statement today in our passage James is going to be talking to us about this um, probably the most important if-then situation in all, in all the universe, really. It has eternal consequences, literal eternal consequences. And what he's going to teach us today is involving these two words, faith and works. If, then, if faith, then works. If faith, then works. And we'll, well, you know, what is, what is faith? Well, you know, I think we think we may know what that is. What kind of faith is he talking about? What, what kind of works? What, what does that exactly mean? Uh, I'm really glad you're asking those questions back to me. I can feel you just having those questions really, really on the edge of your seats. So we're going to dive into that uh, today and really look at this passage that's one of the most highly debated, most talked about passages in, in the New Testament and possibly the whole, all of Scripture. And, and the reason it's so highly debated, uh, one of them, is because it's, it's a little bit challenging in that there is this uh, apparent contradiction in, in, in it. And that causes a problem because we believe in biblical inerrancy, which means we believe the Bible is inerrant, which means 
without error or fault in all of its teaching. We believe the Bible is without error and fault in all of its teaching because if there's one error in it, it pretty much discredits the whole entire thing. So if it's without error and without fault, we believe that it's consistent, which means it doesn't contradict itself. And this passage on surface level could seem like uh, it's a contradicting some other parts of Scripture. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, but really, this, this has caused a lot of people to view the book of James with a little bit of disdain um, or, or want to throw it out of the New Testament completely. Or some people just discredit the Bible because they'll, they'll point to this verse. Well, this says this and this says this. They don't match. So how can you believe anything the Bible says? And I want to show you today that that's not the case. It really isn't a contradiction. Um, and really, it, it kind of helps us, I think, understand salvation and, and the whole relationship between faith and works in an even greater way. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of see how this relationship between faith and works really works and, and how we can really apply that to our lives. How do we, how do we examine our own lives to see see if we have faith, and, and this to see if we have works uh, in response to our faith. So let's, uh, before we get too much further, let's read our passage so we have something to go off of, and we'll start in verse 14. It starts like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." So we see in this passage, um, there's just a lot of things. Uh, Let's remind ourselves kind of the context of what we're reading. Uh, We've just finished up in the first part of chapter 2 that Michael preached about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, This whole uh, uh, dealing with partiality and showing favoritism. Um, And he ended that with with verse 13 with mercy triumphing over judgment. And then James jumps into this passage about uh, faith and works and that relationship. He's, you know, he's talking to primarily a Jewish audience, uh, Jews scattered throughout the region in a bunch of different locations. And you know, when you think about what these Jews, what their background, their heritage is, it's all, it, it all has been kind of law-based, works-based. Um, they, they've had to have rules and regulations, and they've taken that to the extreme, um, beyond what even God had designed that for, and, and tried to use those things to earn favor with God, to um, relate to God, and, and, and they've kind of now that Jesus has come on the scene to fulfill the law and, and to really show them a new way by grace through faith 
they've, they've kind of swung that pendulum that we talk about sometimes. They've swung it from this works-based thing to, okay, so works don't matter anymore. It's all about grace as long as I believe, that sort of thing. And so James is trying to kind of right the ship in a sense to get them back centered on a right understanding between faith and works and, and not, not discredit it totally and say, no, you don't need works at all. You, you just need faith. No, that's not right. But you need to understand them in the right order. And that's what we're going to really talk about today. So first, let's define the word faith. And then we'll define works and then walk through the passage. So faith. What, what do we mean by faith? It's a word that we use a lot in church. The Bible uses it a lot. I want to define it simply like this, and there's plenty of other definitions that, that deal with different things, but for today, I think this is really what James is getting at in our passage, uh, and this is kind of the definition of real faith. Real faith is trusting God and obeying God. It's trusting God and obeying God. You know, we all exercise different kinds of faith each and every day. Um, you've already exercised faith a lot, even today. All of us have. You you exercised faith by, by walking into this building, um, believing that the roof wasn't going to cave in on you. You trusted the structural integrity, maybe based on past experience. Maybe this is your first time, and you just saw other people doing it. So you're like, okay, they, they seem okay. They're not walking in covering their heads, so, so maybe it's good. And you don't even think about that kind of stuff. But I know that you have faith in that because you came in. And I know you had faith in your chair to sit down because when we ask you to sit, you sat. And, and, and that it kind of shows that everyday faith, um, we, we do that kind of trusting and that action piece, those two pieces that we see here. But the difference between everyday faith and saving faith, which is what really what we're after, is that the things that we place our faith in are the most important things. So those, that's the most important piece of all of this. So if we're placing our faith in a building or in a chair or whatever little thing it might be, Obviously, those things don't have any power. They don't have any power to, to help us, benefit us at all, except to you know, rest our legs and those sorts of things. But no real transformational saving power. When we place our faith in, faith in Jesus, uh, that's the object of our faith. We gain access to, to power um, that is able to transform our lives. And, and when we think about faith, too, another, another thing I want to just have us kind of a caution in some ways but sometimes faith can become uh, so, so great that we kind of have faith in our faith. We, we, we tend, we, instead of faith in Jesus, like it should be, we, we tend to kind of be, get comfortable or rest in, in maybe the greatness of our faith or the strength of our faith. I, I read this quote on somebody's Facebook wall last night as I was studying this, and I wanted to share it. It says this, It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but what your faith is in. So basically reiterating that point. It's not, not how strong you believe something. It's not how strong your belief is in Jesus. I just, I just know without a doubt that Jesus died for my sins. We want you to be confident. We want you to have that. But that's not where your salvation, where your, your ultimate trust should lie. Your, our trust is in Jesus and what he has done. Not anything that we could do. Not anything, even, even the good things, our abilities to serve God. You know, sometimes I think that creeps in. You know, man, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I'm doing a lot of good things. I, 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 I know that God loves me because of that. Well, no, he, he doesn't love me because of anything we can do, and that, that should drive us to do those good things. All right, so, that, so a little bit about faith to help frame our discussion. Now, works. How, how do we define works as we talk about this over these next few minutes? Works, simply this, living a life of loving God and loving others. 
All right, so James isn't really talking about the law. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments specifically, although those are good, obviously, things we should still try to follow. But James has already mentioned several times in his letter, in the, even just a chapter and a half that we've studied so far, he talks about this law of liberty, this law of liberty. And, and really, the law of liberty is dealing with this, uh, this idea of loving God, loving others, this, the freedom that we now have in Christ to, to love others, to um, share the love of Christ that we've experienced with all of those around us. Now, one of the dangers when we talk about works is to always kind of, um, we have a tendency to quickly add works to faith to equal salvation. Now, we've we got to be careful not to do that because faith doesn't need to be added, or works don't need to be added to your faith to validate your faith. So it's not like your faith is, you know, when you believe in God, it's not incomplete and unable to save you until you do some good works. Otherwise, that's a works-based righteousness that doesn't really, you know, doesn't really work with the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, or the gospel at all. The good news of Jesus is that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and Jesus has done it all. So, how should we think about it? We should think about it in this way, that, that really legitimate faith leads to an ongoing love for God, a love for others, and a lifestyle. Really, anything that, that we do in love that, re, that reflects Christ to the world around us, and it leads us to those things, even if, even if it's not perfection or it's imperfectly executed. Um, you know, I think of the illustration of a, a parking ticket. And sometimes you'll go to a place, you'll get a parking ticket, and then you've got to go get it validated at a store so you can get, you know, three free hours or whatever it may be. So you, got, you have this ticket, you've got it, and so maybe we'll view it as our faith ticket. And so this, what I just explained, we have the tendency to think sometimes, okay, I've got my faith ticket, now I've got to go get it stamped with good works before it's complete. It's kind of illegitimate or it's not really saving complete faith unless we add something to it. That's, as I said, a mistake, kind of a misconstruing of what the Bible talks about in this relationship between faith and works. Really, it would be more like we get the ticket, we go through the parking attendant, he gives us our ticket, or we get it out of the little machine, and we immediately get it stamped. It, like before we even get in there, we don't have to go in it, we don't do anything. It just, and we get it stamped because we have the ticket. Because we have the ticket, it's not we have to go find or do, do anything to go do it. It's just because you have the ticket, you get the stamp. If you have true faith, you will have good works. So let's, uh, hopefully that didn't confuse you more. I know works, we're, hopefully some of this will kind of come to light. It, it, this, one of the challenges with this passage is, is that it is a very simple concept. It is simple, but there's words that are being used in different ways. And so hang with me as we walk through the passage, and let's see, see if we can make some sense of it and get a good grasp on, on what James is teaching and how that really does support and kind of enhance, in a sense, all of the rest of the teaching of Scripture. All right, first point here is this. Faith without works is a dead faith. This is what he's making this point in these first few verses, 14 through 17. Read those again to refresh your memory. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Obviously, these questions are written with the obvious kind of no answers in a rhetorical way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Obviously, none. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the situation James is describing, 
We don't know. Maybe it's a literal situation that's happening in one of these churches. Maybe he's just using it as an example. But you've got somebody here that, a brother or sister, they said, so a fellow believer, maybe somebody in one of their churches comes and is really struggling. Like, it has some significant needs uh, with food and clothing. They're, They're literally naked and starving, and this other person will come up to them and just pat them on the back and say, you know, I really hope the best for you. Uh, you know, I'll be praying for you. I, I really, uh, you know, wish you the best and, and kind of lets them go on their way. James is t- kind of taking a picture of that situation and saying, guys, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. How, how, how are you showing them lo- the love of Christ by just using your words and saying that? It doesn't mean anything. It's dead, as he calls it. And another interesting thing about even just these few verses here, if you remember at the beginning, we talked about who the author was, and uh, we believe James to be the author, and there are several Jameses in the New Testament, and, uh, but we really believe this, this author to be James, the, the brother of Jesus, the, the brother of Jesus, uh, and who became a leader in the church uh, in, in the book of Acts there in Jerusalem, and a lot of his teaching in this book we'll see really mirrors Jesus very closely. So in Matthew 25, this is Jesus talking. I want, to, I want you to see some of the similarities even uh, in this verse. It starts like this in Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave no food. I was thirsty, and you gave no drink. I was a stranger. And you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. What James is trying to say here, and what Jesus is trying to say here, is, is that saving faith results in action. Saving faith doesn't just lie dormant, it, it, it has to result in action if it's truly saving faith. Uh, the psychologist, um, Dr. Alfred Adler, he has an interesting theory of individual psychology. Uh, It says that when dealing with people, you you trust only in movement. Life happens at the level of action. We are not what we say, but we are what we do. What we do, he says, is the real key to our intentions. Now, that's a little bit bit extreme, and, you know, psychologists, it's a little bit bit out there, Uh, but but I think the principle is a little bit, it's somewhat uh, similar to to what we're dealing with, in in that we really do. People People can say they have faith all they want, but until they're doing something about it, like you don't, that, that's just how you, how you prove it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think for us, one way is when we think about our own faith and how it's being lived out is, is to think how often do we, maybe as Christians, pray for people. We, we, uh, hopefully you pray for others, pray for needs around you, or, or um, sometimes we may just say and we might forget but how often do we do, do that and, and forget or just even immediately dismiss the idea that what we're praying for, God is wanting to use us to answer that prayer for another person? You know, I think sometimes uh, we, we don't even, you know, we, we think that praying for them is enough. And that's certainly a, a great place to go. But, but I think a lot of times we should start, God, how, how, as I'm praying for this, reveal to me ways that I can help. Now, we, we know that we cannot meet every need that we see. I know many of you try to, and, and you just can't. And, it, it could be, and we can't solve all the problems in the world ourselves. But I really believe that 
we would, if we truly have saving faith, that our love for God is going to just, it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continually grow, which will lead towards a growing love for others. And as we pray for them, we're going to be more open. We're going to be more ready and willing to go to action for them. To go, to go to help support them, whatever the need may be, whatever the, the thing might uh, call for, the situation might call for, we'll be ready to, to put action to our faith. Not, be, not to earn anything, not as um, a requirement of any sort, but just out of a response of the love that God has shown us. Secondly, we see that this faith without works is, is a demon faith in the next couple of verses. He gives this analogy. Let's take a look. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God God is one. You do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. All right, so here we see James bring this antagonist into view to represent an opposing viewpoint. He brings them into the picture. This guy's basically saying, okay, he wants to separate faith and works. Really, okay, that's good that you have your faith. You believe in God, that's cool. Well, um, you know, or you have your works, and I'll just keep my faith. I, I believe in God, and, you know, those are pretty much equal things. You have the works part, I have the faith, we're good. And James is saying, okay, well, I'm going to show you my faith by my works because of this example of the demons. He said, look, even the, even the demons have faith. You know, we, what we're learning here is that saving faith is a lot more than just intellectual assent. It's just like an agreement to, to what is true. Just, just a, you know, the whole thing from your mind to your heart. You can believe in your mind all these things. And, and really, it's, not, it's even more than that. You know, saving faith is more than having correct doctrine. It's really more than believing. You see here in this verse, the demons, they not, not only know who God is, but they, they shudder when they even think about who he is. Because they, they, they know all about God. They know what their fate's going to be. And they, they have chosen to rebel and... And it is an example of faith that does not save, faith that can't save. Um, so in many ways, we, we need to be careful for that because, you know, there, there, there are people that know a lot about the Bible. There, there are people that can know a lot of things, but if, if their lives don't um, reflect what, what, they're, what they're saying, what the Bible says, we have reason to believe and only God knows their heart, but we have reason to believe that, that they truly don't have saving faith. Because faith, saving faith, leads to a submission to God. And that's subpoint. And, and you know, this whole idea of, of belief versus faith, we, we've talked about it before. It comes up a lot in different passages, but you know, an example would be is if I came over here and on this speaker mount and said, I believe without a shadow of doubt, I have complete faith. That if I were to grab this and swing like a monkey, maybe I'll swing toward Jake here, and uh, if I were to swing, that this would not get ripped out of the wall. And I, I saw it got put up, I saw the guy install it, it's in studs, it would hold all my weight. Um, how would you know if I really had faith that that would not take place? If I really did it, right? If I really, if I really did that, if I can say it all I want and hang on it, or, or say that I'm going to hang on it, but if I, until I really hang on it, I... I really don't, I, you can say I really don't have faith. And, and that, you know, you can think of a hundred different scenarios like that. And 
I told the first service, some of them had kind of a concerned look. They were like, oh, is he going to really try to hang on that? It looks, doesn't look. And, and I was like, no, I'm going to wait till the second service to do that. It's just in case the speaker falls off or something. And, but don't tell them that I didn't do it. So um, <clears throat> they'll never know, although some of you were here. Dang it. Um, so so what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that the faith, it will lead to action. It will lead to submission to God, true saving faith. And, and James is showing here that, that even the demons believe in God. And so, so we have to be careful for that and, and be on the lookout. Next verse in verse 20 also says that faith without works is, is really just a useless faith. He's reiterating the same point. Faith without works is a useless faith. In verse 20 it says this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is getting, he's getting a little fired up, right? He, he's saying, okay, the, you know, these people that are trying to separate faith and works, they don't, they don't connect at all. I've got to, I've got to you know, they're, they're being foolish. They're being completely foolish. Words without actions are meaningless in this context. This, this kind of faith doesn't benefit anyone. He's already addressed the ridiculousness of, of the situation with, with a person coming in, in, in great need, needing clothing, needing food, and we just send them on their way without helping them in those ways at all. I mean, it's just, it, it's not a faith that works. It's not a saving faith. Um, and it, faith without works just doesn't work. And the point under this is saving faith makes a difference. It, it makes a difference, a, a huge difference, as we'll see. Now, in these last few verses of this chapter, uh, James is really showing us kind of the, in some ways, some, some examples. He's really reiterating this point in a lot of different ways, but, but we'll, we'll word it like this, that faith accompanied by works is necessary evidence for salvation. So this is really what James believes about this relationship between faith and works. Now let's read these verses again, and then we'll, we'll talk about them. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we have a couple of examples given in, in these verses. He uses Abraham and Rahab. Remember his context are the Jews, so they're going to connect with these illustrations, these examples. You know, Abraham being the, the patriarch, the, the, the father of the great nation of Israel, um, kind of um, picked by God to play that important role. And then we've got Rahab the prostitute, who uh, we'll, we'll talk about here in a second. But in both cases, James is is saying that both of them showed their true faith by their actions. That's all he's getting at. You know, they had true faith because they, they did something about it. It was more than just words for them, more than just belief. You know, Abraham, as I said, had been, he, God had promised him that he was going to be the father of, of, you know, more stars in the heavens. Just this great nation of Israel were going to be his offspring. And then God asks him to sacrifice his, his son, Isaac, uh, on the mountain. So, so Abraham goes through, through the process of bringing Isaac with him, binding his own son, putting him up on the altar, and is ready to kill him 
as, as God has asked him to do, and then God stops him. And God knows that, that Abraham really trusted him because he obeyed. And then Rahab, who was a prostitute uh, there in the Old Testament in the city of Jericho, uh, uh, obviously one of the you know, women in that culture were, were very viewed upon, uh, very second class, that sort of thing. And then a, obviously a prostitute, just one of the low class citizens. And God used her in a great way and, and showed love to her. Because as she heard about the people of God and, and about the a coming salvation, uh, as, as some of the, the Israelite spies came into the city of Jericho to, to learn about the city and, and figure out how they were going to see, kind of take the city, um, she hid them and sent them out by another way, protecting them uh, in obedience to God for, for just uh, being, being there at the right place, the right time, and uh, not only believing, but putting her belief to action. So, so two more examples. James gives us several in these last few verses. And then right in the middle of those examples, as you noticed, we've read it a couple of times now, is verse 24. And this verse is one of the verses that really is kind of the crux of this contradiction that we talked about at the beginning, this apparent contradiction. There's this, this tension, especially between the teaching of James and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now let's look back at that verse, verse 24 says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that should, seeing that up there kind of by itself with those words highlighted, should make you feel a little uneasy, a little nervous, especially for those of you who are Christians and have received the gospel because that is not what we believe, is it? On those words, those specific words were justified by works. So justified, we, we've talked about that a lot. We, we think of that in terms of, okay, justification by works, justified. So God views me as I, just as if I'd never sinned. That, that's, how, that, that's what justify means. God views us that way. And, and it actually means even something further, or just as if I'd already always obeyed. So just as, not just we've never sinned, but what we've always obeyed. Christ's righteousness has been kind of put on us, imputed to us through his death on the cross and resurrection and through that sacrifice. So that's what justify means. So we're, we kind of are made right before God by our works and not by faith alone. We'll, we'll see in these, let me show you a few other verses from Paul that, that kind of add to this tension, add to this tension. So we see in Paul's teaching the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the, the rest of the New Testament. A couple of verses in Romans. Here's one in Romans 3.28. says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, so that seems to be the opposite. Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right, so there's three examples, very clear examples uh, of how we kind of understand faith and works to really work as far as our justification before God. So how would, some, something's got to be going on here. As I mentioned before, that it, we don't have a contradiction. I'm not going to give you something earth-shattering today and discredit the whole Bible or anything like that. Obviously impossible to do. But I, but I want us to kind of feel that tension for a second because it helps us have a greater understanding of how, how it gets resolved. All right, so, so when Paul talks about justification by works, this is what he, how he defines it. And he rejects this definition. He, he defines it like this. Gaining right standing with God by the merit of works. 
So God, we earn God's favor by our works. He, Paul rejects that. Now James, on the other hand, his justification by works, he defines it a little bit differently. He says that it's maintaining a right standing with God by faith along with the necessary evidence of faith, namely the works of love. All right, And James affirms this definition. So what we see here, and I want to read you, to you this paragraph from uh, Pastor John Piper who, who kind of rewords it and re-explains this in a really good way that I think will help us. He says this, to put it another way, when, when Paul teaches in Romans 4-5, we'll go back to that real quick for you so you can have it for reference. When he teaches in 4-5 that we are justified by faith alone, he means that the only thing that unites us to Christ for righteousness is dependence on Christ, trusting, trusting Christ. Now, when James, in James 2.24, says that we are not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith which justifies does not remain alone. Okay, so that's a key distinction. These two positions are, are not contradictory. Faith alone unites us to Christ for righteousness, and the faith that unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. It bears the fruit of love. So what we have here is, is two guys really talking about the same thing. They're, they're talking about the same thing, just kind of from two sides, two, you know, this same coin, two different sides. And, and I, I'm, as I read this and kind of look at it, I'm like, man, I really wish I could kind of get them in a room together and have them kind of argue with one another. And, and my personality, I, I really don't like conflict. I'm, I've always been just kind of the peacemaker of the group and that sort of thing and trying to see both sides. And so I, mean, I can picture them just sitting there and then me going, guys, 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 look, look. So, so you're saying this and, and Paul would be like, okay, yeah, yeah, James, I see you're saying that. Okay. And then, and, and then over here, James is going, okay, Paul, I see that. And both of them being like, yeah, I agree with you based on your definition. Yep, I agree with you. And they would do that back and forth and, you know, everything would be rosy and they'd realize they'd cause years of division among the church and all the things that have come since this. But, but I, I think what the, the big thing about this is for us to understand that our faith and works, the, the importance of our works being as a result of our faith, not as a, as a cause for our faith or in addition to our faith to save us. All right, so look in Galatians 5, 6. This is uh, just a kind of an affirmation of, that Paul really does believe what James has been ta- telling us. So the Bible's not contradicting itself. Right here in Galatians 5, 6. This is the Apostle Paul. He says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, so this is what James is talking about with the whole, whole idea of loving, loving God, loving others, and, and good works. Now, as we get ready to, to close and uh, think through this, I know, I know it can be such a simple thing, and to talk half an hour about such a kind of a, a basic concept can sometimes make it more confusing. So I want to give you just a simple kind of equation. Faith plus works equals salvation. Now, when you look at that, your red flag should go up, ding, 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 you know, a buzzer or something, again, says, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't jive. That, that's correct. That is wrong. So we'll put a mark through that, put a mark through that. Think of it this way. Faith leads to salvation, which leads to works. That's really what James is saying. That's what Paul believes, even though Paul mainly dealt with kind of a different aspect of it. Uh, in his letters, and he was dealing with different contexts and things. James is dealing with a different, different one too. But there's no difference in substance of what they're saying. They're saying the same thing, only just using different vocabulary, different emphasis. And, and, and so we can rest in that and be assured that, that the Bible is, is still inerrant and, and really 
in this way, it, it shows us um, really how we are to view our, our faith and how, how that relates to, to how we live. Um, and I want to kind of end with this challenge to you to, to think about. I, w- I want you, uh, as we think about works, I, I know a lot of you are, you know, wanting to, you're hoping for a list of something. Like, can, can you just maybe on the back of the sermon notes, just give me a list of 15 things that I can just make sure, you know, I can just check off and know that God's pleased with me, that I'm doing the right things. And, and I think God doesn't give us a checklist for a good reason because he knows we would, we would quickly drift back into that kind of legalism of doing things. There's certain, certainly good principles for us to live by and, and to follow. and to, we, we, we can talk about all those things and I want, want you to flesh that out in your community groups this week. But, but picture this situation. So imagine, imagine if yourself put on trial and you're accused of being a Christian. Uh, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, you know, a few years ago, this, this situation might have seemed like, you know, here in America, so far off in the field. But as you see where her culture is going, this, this, could be, this could be real life. This could be real life for some of us in, in the coming years. So, so I want you to think about, would there be enough evidence to convict you as your coworkers? As your family members come and testify, as, as they bear witness on your life, is there enough action, resulting action to, to your faith that, that you would be sentenced because you were a Christian, convicted of being a Christian, which I, I hope all of us would be. Maybe some of you are here and, and you would say, no, I, you know, I, I either know I don't know Christ or I know I'd, you know, I, I don't have any desire to do good works or, or, or any of those things. And, and you need a relationship with Jesus. We would be happy to, to um, help you talk through that, help, you, help lead you in that. Um, so be sure to check that box on your connection card um, before you leave today and turn that back in for us. We, we'll, we can contact you and, and talk with you or, or find one of us here at the, at the end of the service. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that um, we can... I don't know, be thinking about, be thinking about it can make us think about just the, the way we live our lives and it really causes us to examine ourselves in a greater way and, and really remember to root ourselves in the gospel. We, we don't want to root ourselves in, in, in tr- trying to do good things and, and all, all of these kind of, even, even if they're good things, they're, they're not the best thing. The gospel should, should be what kind of grounds us where, where our foundation is and everything should flow out of that. And it just makes sense. As we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper together, I want you to, you know, as we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, what, what he did on the cross for us, you know, what, what, the reason we're, we're here this morning, the reason we study the Bible, the reason we live our lives the way we do as Christians is all revolved, it all revolves around this, this idea uh, that we as humans were separated from God and that God sent his one and only son to, to pay the price for our sins, the sins that separated us from him, and to pay that price on the cross, and then to raise from the dead three days later. later. You know, the, the, the beauty of the gospel is something that, that we celebrate when we, when we remember the Lord's Supper. Um, we do this every, every couple of months here at Fellowship of Grace, and we uh, try, to, try to make it meaningful, do it a little bit different each time. We invite in, anyone that, that professes faith in Christ, that if, you, if you would claim to be a follower of Jesus, um, and kind of uh, in light of today's sermon, 
If you remember, that, that's, that's only one part of it. You can claim to be a follower of Christ all you want, but there's resulting actions from that that, that flow out of your, your saving faith. But if you, if you are a Christ follower, we would invite you to participate with us. You don't have to be just an official member here at Fellowship of Grace. Um, but what, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take a moment and, and, and uh, drink the juice, eat the bread as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And I, as, as I uh, parent my three children and, and continually want to uh, kind of shape their understanding of the gospel and even in their young minds, um, I, I'm always looking for opportunities to talk to them about these kinds of things. And, and as I was kind of getting ready for, for today's service, last night I was talking to my kids, and my son Josiah is five, and so he still, still has a very kind of simple elementary understanding. So I'm ex- kind of explaining to him about Jesus on the cross and kind of the, the, the weight and the burden that our sins placed on Jesus you know, and I know he can't fully grasp it. I can't fully grasp it still, and you know, I'm older than him. Uh, so, so I'm trying to kind of explain that to him, and he, you know, he's just kind of in awe and wonder at my amazing storytelling abilities. And you know, he, he's, he's like, awesome. So then I talk about how Jesus, like, just the pain he went through, even physically with the, the nails, like, through his hands and his feet, and he's like, man. Like, he goes, and he, he's a very... Uh, He's probably my most outspoken kid, and so he's always ready to like jump in with his additions to the story and things like that. So he's like, "Yeah," and and Jesus didn't even he didn't even cry when they were putting those nails. Like when he he, he didn't even cry, and I was like, you know, I'm like, okay, but he didn't give me a chance to finish. And he's like, but like God and Jesus, they're like they're tougher than firemen. They they are like tougher than a fireman. And I was like, yeah, they're pretty tough. They're they're pretty tough and. Um, and I was thinking, okay, so I'm like, wow, where did he get that? Oh, he had a fire truck come to his school earlier this week, so, you know, he's got that on his, his radar, but, but even, like, in that kind of funny picture, and I'm trying to, I'm wanting to explain to him, like, well, there's this verse in the Bible that says Jesus wept, so Jesus does cry, so, you know, I wanted to, but I'm like, okay, I'll, for a later time, for a later time, but, you know, what, what he's getting now and what he is understanding about the gospel is something that I, that I pray and hope will, will continue to grow in him and, and really grow in all of us. Like that, that really is, is why we do the Lord's Supper, so that we can think and focus on, on this, on the gospel, on Jesus' sacrifice for us and, and all that that entails. That we, we can never, it's like a well that just is an infinite, uh, deep, infinitely deep. We can keep going in it and experiencing God's love in a greater way through the truth uh, of the gospel. I want to read these verses in 1 Corinthians that will kind of uh, we're, we're, that show the picture of how uh, and give us instruction of how we're to think and, and feel about the Lord's Supper. It says this. This is the Apostle Paul talking. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what we want to do here in a moment. I'll, I'll um, pray in just a moment. I'm going to ask uh, some of the worship team to come back up, and we'll have some men come up with uh, the bread and the juice. And when I'm finished praying, uh, you can go ahead and stand up, and we're going to sing. A song, I want you to really think about the words as you hear them, as you sing them, 
And when you are ready, you can come up and, and get the bread and the juice and take them back to your seat and, and take them whenever you are, are ready. Now, now remember, this, this Lord's Supper that we talk about, it, it's, it's a symbolic representation. So, so really, we're, we're just remembering and, and taking the bread as a symbol of Christ's body and the juice as a symbol of his blood that was, that was spilled for us and that paid the ultimate price for our sins so that we can have ultimate salvation by grace through faith.